Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Before we get started with our show today, it's actually quite relevant. I was going to tell the audience about a Medium post I recently put up called Script Helper-001, an experimental GPT-4 based movie script writing program that I wrote. And probably more to the fact that I've written the program is I've written this quite detailed essay about how it works, the ins and outs of prompting some pictures of the UI, etc. And so those who want some sort of tangible, hands-on examples about the kind of things we're going to talk about in the show today, that's a good place to look for it. And it'll be on our show notes, as usual, at jimrutshow.com. Also, if you want to comment about today's show, feel free to do so at jim underscore rut at Twitter. All right, now let's get down to it. Today's guest is Carlos Perez. He's the co-founder of Intuition Machines got 20 plus years experience in software development, technical consulting, and he's the author of some interesting books on machine learning and AI. I think I first ran across Carlos on Twitter, where he runs a very interesting stream of commentary and highlighting of papers about machine learning. And by the way, his Twitter handle is at Intuit Machine. And soon thereafter, I read an early book of his called Artificial Intuition, The Improbable Deep Learning Revolution. That book has kind of stuck with me. It's actually a quite interesting book. He subsequently wrote Deep Learning AI Playbook, Strategy for Disruptive Artificial Intelligence, or your tech business book. Hey, business dudes, here's how to use that stuff. And he's currently still a work in progress, but it's available online to download Artificial Empathy, a Roadmap for Human-Aligned Artificial Intelligence. Welcome, Carlos. Well, thank you for having me in the show, Jim. Yeah, I've been looking for an excuse for some time. We've had these interesting conversations over Twitter, and I think we had breakfast one time up in D.C. several years ago. And, you know, putting out this new book, I thought was a good excuse to get you on the show. So before we go on to today's book, I should also note that Carlos also writes an interesting stream of essays on Medium. I mean, like anybody on Medium, he's hot, he's cold, but he's definitely an author on Medium worth following. Today, we're going to talk about a new book that Carlos has published called A Pattern Language for Generative AI, a self-generating GPT-4 blueprint. Well, that's interesting. So when you say self-generating, what did you mean? Yeah, so let me give you some background in this book, right? So when GPT-4 came out, I was doing some experimentation on its ability to introspect its capabilities. And I had previously wrote a blog entry on what I would call like a roadmap to general intelligence or some capability maturity level. I mapped out about six different levels of AI capabilities with the intention of using it to sort of like track uh, progress in the deep learning space and seeing how far we've actually evolved. So what I did with GPT-4 was I had it ingest the blog entry itself. And I asked it, what level do you think you're at? 
and it cranked out a response, which actually was what I expected the level to be, which was around something that did not have uh, uh, too much counterfactual reasoning, but somewhere in the middle of that. So it, it, it nailed it. So I was quite surprised with that result. So it gave me some sort of intuition that this thing, this GPT-4, has some ability to uh, introspect its capabilities. And then one Saturday morning, I had a tweet that queried whether someone had written a pattern language for prompting. And uh, I'm not sure if your audience is familiar with pattern languages, but it was something that was formulated by the architect, uh, Christopher Alexander, to basically come up with what he called a generative language for architectural design. And the idea was that as you build this living language, it becomes a language that different architects could use to exchange how basically the motivations for their design. And that was later picked up, uh, I think at least a decade later, by the software community, particularly the object-oriented community, that used it to describe a more complicated object-oriented designs. That's known as the Design and Patterns book or the Gang of Four book about 20 years ago, or probably a little bit more, right? So I've always been a fan of that particular methodology of developing uh, languages for tacit knowledge that exists. So I was thinking, okay, let's see if I can apply this to the uh, growing space of prompting that we're discovering with things like GPT-4. But to my surprise, I could actually query GPT-4 for that information. And that's what basically I did. I asked GPT-4, first I asked it to explain what a pattern language was, which it did correctly, and the pattern language template which consists of a particular structure, the name of the pattern, the context, the competing forces, some examples, and so forth, right? So it has a particular form. And then I asked it, generate patterns of prompting, and then it cranked out 10. And then I asked it to generate more, give me another 10. And it kept going until it eventually repeated itself. And it got to around, I think it was around 70 different patterns. I knew of some things that it likely didn't know, so I included those additional ones in the book. So the self-generating part is that part where GPT-4 itself was aware of the kinds of prompting patterns that it could actually execute. And what's interesting here is when you see the pattern come out and you see the example, you look at it and you say, this can't be right, it can't possibly do this, and give them an example. But when you put the example into GPT-4, it does what it says it does. It can do. So it's, it's quite surprising. So I did that. But in the method of pattern language design, you tend to place them into higher level categories. So for example, in the gang of four, they put it under three categories, behavioral, creational, and I forget the third one. I think it's structural, something like that. So I needed to do something like that. So I had GPT-4 take the 70 patterns and say, give me a classification for this, right? Um, unfortunately, when it cranked it out, it, it was a classification that was kind of, I would call kind of pedestrian, kind of something that I didn't find satisfying. So that kind of revealed some sort of limitation in the kinds of concepts that um, GPT would favor, right? I, I think it in general, it would favor concepts that would be 
more commonly known. So I didn't take his advice and instead uh, basically manually um, categorized it, the patterns myself under a framework that was more uh, organic, so to speak. Now, I also did the same thing with Bard and Claude. It's in the appendix of the book. And what's interesting is Claude comes up with some interesting ones, a lot smaller set. But Bard at that time was very limited. Surprisingly, it had only a few patterns that he could crank out. So it's an interesting note. GPT was intimately involved in both the inspiration and the creating of this book. Yes. Oh, yeah. So where I made a mistake was I should have initially constructed it through a some sort of executable language like within a programming language rather than just spit out the text in GPT. Because a lot of work that I found out I had to do was take the, the content of, from GPT and basically cut and paste and put in Word document and do all the extra formatting work. So it does it. So it really wasn't as self-generating or self-updating as I wanted. So my next step is really to just take it to the next level and actually put it within a more like a, a generative executable uh, language rather than a, a Word document, so to speak. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'm working on this script writing program. And it actually started from similar motivation. I was working with a friend of mine who's a semi-pro movie script writer. He's had one produced and he's had several of them win prizes and stuff. And we were playing around with GPT and cutting and pasting. And after a while, it just got to be untenable, the complexity of managing all that. So I started writing this program. And it's amazing, the combination of programming and GPT, how much more you can do because you can cache all these intermediate results and then feed them back and combine them. You know, for instance, when I have my program write the description of a scene, I feed it all the previous descriptions of scenes that it has already created in compressed form so that it knows the synchronization and I give it the overall synopsis of the movie as a whole before it writes its scene. So I'm basically sending it a whole bunch of stuff, which it itself had previously created. So it's the kind of thing that you couldn't possibly do by cutting and pasting. So I do encourage people who are really interested in doing complicated things with prompts to move beyond using ChatGPT and sign up for the OpenAI API. Really opens up the scope of what's doable. And I highly recommend it. And of course, I think we both have found that GPT 4 is qualitatively way beyond GPT 3.5. I sometimes describe GPT 3.5 as kind of a smart but unreliable 13 year old, while GPT 4 reminds me of a very disciplined, well behaved, recent graduate of an Ivy League college who's gone to work for McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, right? It pretty much does what you tell it. It does a pretty good job, and it doesn't just arbitrarily do something else, which 3.5 sometimes will do. Yeah, and I, I think uh, because of the limited context window, even for GPT-4, there's a lot of managing of that context that you have to do, right? So it, it, like, uh, it, if I have like 100 patterns, I can't have that in the prompt itself, but it, it has to know off the patterns if it's going to relate them together. So there's some management involved where you're taking pieces of information and inserting in the prompt so that at least it can basically 
refer to that information in its generation. Yeah, that's, of course, a continual problem. One of the things I find so fascinating is the idea of the context window as which everything has to go through and come out. And it, at least I have found in the work I'm doing, mostly writing narrative and dialogue, is that even though you have technically an 8,000 token, maybe 6,000 word window, maybe a little bit more, in reality, it tends to lose its, I find at least, lose its coherence beyond maybe 1,500, 2,000 tokens. And so that you actually get a better product if you can chop the work up into smaller pieces even than the, than the context window. If you have that thought as well, that the context window is maybe big enough relative to the quality of the models. In other words, that the models don't keep coherence for really long prompts. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's interesting about the design patterns is that it reveals techniques to sort of like manage that context window. And it just comes out for some reason, uh, um, GPT-4 is aware of that, a particular way of doing things. Things like chain of thought just comes out for free. <laughs> yeah, can you explain what change of thought is, by the way? Our audience, they probably have done some GPT, chat GPT, but probably most of them haven't done any API work yet. Yeah, the, the idea of chain of thought is that um, when you ask GPT or any large language model, actually not all of them can actually perform chains of thought, but if you ask them a complicated problem, it's more likely to solve it by actually explaining the intermediate steps, by telling it to explain the intermediate steps of the solution. So that would be the chain of thought. So you would actually have multiple prompts, but each prompt would be some intermediate explanation until you get to the final solution, rather than just asking it to just say, crank out the answer. And, it, it, uh, and a lot of times it, it won't do as well. And I found this the whole that whole notion to be very valuable in the kinds of prompting that I do for uh, understanding concepts. I guess if you've seen my Twitter's feed, where I do a lot of these table kind of uh, operations. So one of the things that you can really do very well with uh, GPT four is have it render multiple answers to the same question across multiple dimensions. So you actually build these tables that say, take two concepts or a couple of concepts and basically break it up into different um, features or dimensions. And you can compare the, a complicated concept across these dimensions. But you have to be careful in what you do and how you do this. In other words, you have to also do it step by step. You want to add, for example, like one column at a time and basically build a column and then use that as the kind of base camp for the next query and so forth. Yeah, and that's certainly a key part of prompt engineering is doing a step at a time and learning as you go. You know, on this chain of thought, I'm going to again come back and say, I suspect the reason that is important is that the coherence range of these models is actually shorter than their context windows. Even if in theory it could do it within its context window, the nature of the way the correlations work inside the model the range from first token to 7,000th token is so far that the statistical coherence in the model doesn't really work, right? If you ask it to tell a story, for instance, the story kind of rolls off into incoherence, or you have it explain a business strategy for 6,000 tokens, by the end, it more or less forgets what the hell it was talking about at the beginning. And that's, again, a reason why. 
that's also why you, it's useful in prompting to sometimes always give them a, uh, generated from some sort of outline and then it would generate the, the, I think you do that in your, your script writer where you, you, you have it build a high level plot and then you work out the details. I've used that trick not just in my scriptwriter, but elsewise. It's actually quite good at taking a chunk of text that either it wrote or came from elsewhere and breaking it down into chunks, you know, in the chapters and to, out, you know, to outline this argument. It'll do it. And then you can give it the argument and feed them the items one at a time and say, you know, write this out in some detail, but it helps to have it give you the stuff before that it, it as well. So it has some context, you know, and I call that the skyhook effect, you know, get, GPT to do most of the work for you. In fact, that's one of the core notions in my program is first you gradually build up a long form narrative of your movie. And then you'd say, GPT, turn this into, you know, let's say you want 24 scenes, turn this into 24 scenes. And amazingly, it does it. And I've seen you do that as well. Now, to this issue of tables, I must admit, I learned that from you on the Twitter feed. That was the first time I'd seen somebody doing that. I use it all the time. Another thing it's particularly good at for, let's say you're exploring an idea. You're not an expert in it at all. You're just trying to you know, kind of conceptualize, is let GPT do the conceptualizing for you. So, for instance, I will often say, you know, compare and contrast, you know, anarchism, 19th century Marxism and game B, and you choose the aspects in which to compare and contrast them and choose those which will help with the most contrast distinguished between these three. And I want about seven. And it will pick seven categories, seven or eight categories that actually do do a pretty good job of distinguishing between them. And then I say, fill in all the cells in the table. And it does. You know, that kind of thing, as you warn, sometimes it produces fairly banal results. But, you know, you play around the prompt a little bit and say, you know, I want a lot of detail on this. Or, you know, then once you have seven, you say, add another one. What are the monetary theories of these three systems? It'll just add it. But letting it do the subdivision of the intellectual domain is something that works surprisingly good. Again, as long as the list isn't too long, 10 maybe at the most. But I think the value of using tables is that it does also give some kind of coherence between all the entries in it, rather than if you were just doing it individually. When it expresses something, it's kind of in the same ballpark or, or kind of like it's within some constraint. Right? So, so I, I think it's a better approach to prompting than if you did it individually. The nice thing about it is that you can... You can actually individually address different cells and columns and that sort of thing, like a Excel spreadsheet. Yep. Uh, actually, I haven't tried that. Can you say, all right, in the second column, third row, please expand on that. Will that work? To make it more concise, you tell it to label the columns like ABC and then the, the rows, one, two, three, et cetera, right? And then you can more precisely describe it. But you can you can also get away if you're lazy, just say the second column or the third column, and, and it sort of gets it right most of the time, right? But if you want to label it, it's, it's probably better to just label it to be more precise. Oh, that's an excellent idea. So now let's go back again. We talked sort of generally about prompting and different ways of thinking about it. Let's take your formalism of a pattern language, and let's dig down into that a little bit. As you said, you took the 70 and then you added 30, so you had like 100 patterns, and then you decided you didn't like GPT's categorization, and so you built your own. You know, why don't we lay out the pattern language, essentially, that these things have fall into, and let's talk about each one a little bit. Yeah, so I came up with uh, eight patterns, 
creational, transformational, coherence, explainability, procedural, composite, corrective, and uh, recombinational, and variational. And, and they're somewhat organically uh, inspired in the sense that you have variation and recombination and some sort of selective pressure, which I use the word corrective in, in, in this case, right? So creational patterns are really the most basic patterns that you have, what most people would use. And basically, it's just you're kicking off a generation for the first time, right? So you start from scratch. And yeah, there's several of them probably, but the most important, probably the most fundamental one, right? And we knew this back in GPT-3 was what I call the in, input-output pair pattern, right? This is somewhere in the middle of that document, right? Let's keep on our outline. Let's be a good language model here. So this is under creation patterns, which is your first bucket. And about halfway through that list, there is one called input-output pairs. So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, yeah. So that this one is the most basic kind, uh, which uh, we've, we've known since GPT-3, that if you gave pairs of examples as the prompt, then it can use that to complete a new pair, for example, right? And the evolution of GPT has been that they've just added new features like instruct and be able to follow programming languages. But at a fundamental level, if you want the maximum flexibility, you would go with an input-output pair, right? And what I've seen is that there's certain things that you can't have, say, for example, ChatGPT do, but you can have it through an instruction, but it's possible through an input-output pair. Give an example. Yeah, I had written a uh, Google add-on a couple of years ago with using GPT-3, and I noticed <laughs> that it was able to do more kind of like odd kinds of analogies that GPT-4 will just basically punt on. Because the analogy that I'm trying to have GPT generate is just too divergent. So it just says, punt, these two are not related, something like that. But I forget the actual instance. I'll have to run it again. But there are lots of cases where a lot of ambiguity, when you give it to GPT-4, it's sort of like punts. But it doesn't when you're giving these input-output pairs. Let's give an example of what an input-output pair is. That would be like, uh, for example, I, I mean, the most basic, uh, you might do uh, like paraphrasing, for example, right? Of, of course, you can always, today, you can always ask it to paraphrase, paraphrase, for example, with a well-known author and it has that information. But what if you needed to paraphrase with someone who's completely unknown? So you would actually give examples of a, a, a sentence, uh, just a bare bone sentence, and how that author would say it. And you would give several examples of that. And then, then it learns the kind of like the, the style of that author, right? Even though that author is unknown, right? Now, you cannot do that without examples. And it does like examples and it learns from examples. You know, an example, one of the things I've struggled with at first, which was in my program, especially when I have it kick out the scenes, a title and a brief description of each scene. And soon it will also list the characters because it's such a pain in the ass to parse that out, I wanted it to kick it out in JSON format. So at first, I just told it to do it in JSON format. And it was okay. GPT-4, probably good enough. GTP 3.5, a fair shit show, frankly. Then I gave it an example. And then suddenly, it got way better, right? So I said, put it out in JSON format. By JSON, here's an example of what I mean. Da-da-da-da-da. In the same way, I also have it 
put all character names with angle brackets. And again, at first, I just said, use angle brackets around all character names. And it was about 80% correct. But when I then started putting examples in, you know, example, angle bracket George, angle bracket Mary, thereafter, it got about to be 95% accurate. So it likes examples. Right. And that's an interesting thing, too, that, uh, oh, yeah, it's also in the, um, in the same creational patterns, right, that the idea of punctuation, punctuation is actually very important. And you can sort of do some kind of programming like like you were just saying, using angle brackets to say this part is something that I want replaced, so to speak, right? Or use it like a, use it like a template. So these things that you often see in programming languages like C or JavaScript or Python, right? Because it's also trained in uh, those languages, so it actually inherits the meaning of that punctuation. So things like square brackets, curly brackets, so forth, right? And they all have particular meanings that you can actually leverage to to have some sort of template-like capability. Could you give an example? Yeah, you could, you could use it, for example, as a template, as in you would set up like a form letter and, and basically in, say, uh, square brackets, you would have a variable name. And then you can assign the variable name b- before the uh, final generation and it'll fill it in. Of course, the most interesting thing and. In, Claude actually gave an example of this as a capability. I'm not sure if it's in the GPT-4, but GPT-4 is also capable of doing it. It's called the, how do you pronounce that? C-L-O-Z-E. C-L-O-Z-E, closer? What the hell is that? I don't even know what that is. It's called a closed prompt. And basically the thing is, uh, for example, uh, in the in the closed prompt, right, you could say the ship sailed into blank ocean, seagull circled in the blank sky, Sailor grays out in the blank horizon, right? And then, then basically you can uh, tell it to just fill in the blanks and it'll fill in the blanks in a way that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, you could do that in computer languages with wild cards, things like that. Yes, yeah, so it's a wild card in that, in that sense, yes. A wild card, but it keeps it somewhat consistent because the entries are different. Yep. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you, that's a good point. Yeah, that's not really a classic wild card because you want it to be context-dependent, right, which I expect it would do. That is kind of cool. Let's move on to transformational patterns. I found these to be very interesting. I've played with them some myself. For instance, summarization and simplification prompts. Very handy. I think one of the things that we're going to find that's GPT-4 in the real world is going to be most useful. I would love for GPT-4 to read all my email, summarize it into one paragraph, and just give me the paragraphs, right? And do the same for much of the stuff that floats by in websites and on Twitter and Facebook to, you know, summarize whole threads and, you know, one paragraph, then for me to then decide, do I want to see more? That's really a superpower. And it does it pretty damn well. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting examples of these transformational patterns is this idea of compressing text. I played with that one too. And you could get it to do non-human readable compressions. You can get it to human readable compressions. I've got the feature in my script writer program because some of these prompts get pretty long. And so, for instance, I can compress the movie textual narrative and it cuts it by about two thirds, amazingly, and seems to lose very little in expressive power, maybe a little around the edges. So I only turn it on when I need it. And I'm sure you've seen the prompts, you know, use arcane characters, use emoticons, use whatever you want. It's not for human consumption. And it really compresses the hell out of things if you give it complete freedom to do so. At least GPT-4 does. 
3.5 doesn't seem to handle compression nearly as well as 4 does. It would kind of be interesting if in the future they built a standard compression language into the processor as a posted preprocessor. Though, of course, it would cost them money because they charge you by the token. So to putting in less tokens or and getting out less tokens actually costs them some money. <laughs> but I think this is an extremely valuable technique because if you need to, I mean, you have a limited uh, context window and you really want to put as much semantics in there, right? And how would you do that? And um, some sort of compression technique would be extremely useful. I've also found it useful in terms of emoticons. So it, it, it's kind of like working with some raw semantic vector and then manipulating. So you can take a, a set of emoticons, say five emoticons, right, to represent a concept. And you can have it also say, give me the opposite of this, and it'll generate another bunch of emoticons. And, and then you can ask it, uh, what's the explanation of this emoticon? Because you can't read it, right? And when it conjures it up, it's it's uh, you'll notice, oh, it's almost like semantic vector arithmetic of old days, right? When they used to do the word back, right? So it's, it's an interesting capability that's just there. Uh, that's a very cool one. I have to try that. I did see somebody, this was Jack, the GPT-3 days. They just asked it to produce five emoticon versions of movies, so, you know, give me five emoticons that explain Godfather. You know, give me five emoticons that explain Apocalypse Now, et cetera. And then some scientists did research and then turned that around and said, all right, now take these five emoticons. And, and okay, what movie is that? And the hit rate was like 80%. It was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And you would think that these models have some sort of internal language that allows it at the minimum to translate between different languages i mean how how does it actually translate between different languages it's probably going through some sort of uh interlingua that it knows of because you can have it translate into a different language that you don't actually have a dictionary of between those two languages i think we got to be careful we don't really know what's going on in these black boxes right and they don't have any language they don't have any logic they don't have any memory they can't change their state they're entirely static you know, I must say, I, for one at least, am totally blown away that these bigger models seem to have these abilities, even though we know they're static. There's no moving parts, right? There's no memory. Nothing changes. How does it do that? There's something about these statistical correlations that's truly emergent. There's more seemingly happened than seems possible. And I've talked to some real experts on this, and nobody seems to know. I mean, they, we don't know how this is working. Well, I have a, my own explanation as how does it actually track state, for example, uh, because we know that it can actually track state up to a certain level with regards to uh, if you ask it, what's the result of this computer program, for example, right? And it will do it at a certain level, right? And my explanation is, is that it, it works very similar to how functional programming languages work. In, in other words, it's Functional programming languages are supposed to be stateless, but you, but it has execution state by basically transforming the actual symbols itself. And that's what I think it's doing to actually basically emulate state. So you can actually see this in GPT-4 and you can run a functional program and you can see, you can kind of predict how many layers does GPT-4 have. And, and I think GPT-4 has something under than 100 layers. 
because he cannot compute more than 100 steps. Oh, that's interesting. And that's the same depth at GPT-3. So what's the, what's the difference? I think GPT-4 is just wider than GPT-3. But its depth, you're right, is just the same. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Well, let's go on to your next set, coherence patterns. Yeah, this is the one I really struggled with. But it's really this idea that across the prompts, you want to have some sort of coherence. In other words, I guess the best way to think about it is if you're trying to build a chat bot, right, you would actually have some sort of prompt that would consistently be there so that it keeps a coherent identity, so to speak, right? So you want something that is coherent across different prompts. You're essentially copying and pasting or moving state across multiple invocations of a GPT. Give us an example. Yeah, for example, in the case of if you needed to, for example, uh, have a character within a chatbot, for example, right? You would basically explain the, what the personality of that chatbot would be, right? But you would maintain that across different invocations. You get that on the API itself, right? I think it's called the, what do they call it? The system? Yes, the system prompt. Yeah, system prompt. I use it very heavily. For instance, in all my script writing work, the system prompt does say, you are an assistant helping a screenwriter write a screenplay. And now something I'm going to add tomorrow is a style prompt, which will also go in every single system prompt because people have asked me for this, which is, and you are going to write in the style of Quentin Tarantino. I've tested Tarantino, Alfred Hitchcock, and one others. And it's amazing how much it changes the writing style. You can also say be verbose, be precise, be concise. You know, And it does take those style hints quite seriously. Right. And, and, and it's definitely much better with GPT-4 or even chat GPT as compared to the previous version. Yeah, and I have found that GPT-3.5 you're better off putting those prompts in the user prompt than the system prompt because it, it only sort of semi-pays attention to the system prompt. But 4 does a damn good job. I mean, in 4, they really you really can save a lot of prompting by having good system prompts. But it's interesting that the API itself is structured that way because that's not really how um, the transformer models are actually structured. Like, what does it have the separation between the system and, and the user prompt? So there's something going on and they covered that. Now that you mentioned that, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. The transformer itself doesn't know, I don't think, unless they somehow trained it in a way to assume both of those, which I don't know. They won't tell us. That's kind of annoying. A company called OpenAI is actually now about the most closed AI company out there. Yeah, this notion of the coherence pattern, right, or having a context that goes across yeah, it's, it's it's known since even GPT-3. That's what I used to do also, right? You, you basically carry state across um, uh, invocation so that it maintains some sort of consistency. Yep, 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 yep. Or you intentionally change it, right? For instance, in my screenwriter, I haven't added characters behind the scenes yet, but I soon will. And you can change the emotional state of the characters. You know, there's Mary who's sweet and nice most of the time, but she's in a pissed off mood in this occasion. And it will write quite different dialogue, which is kind of cool. So let's go on to the next one. Explainability patterns. Explainability patterns are really, uh, I guess, in some way, they're related to transformational patterns but a little bit more complicated in the sense of not just a summary, but ways to explain the content. 
for example, you 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 want things to one example of a pattern is a historical perspective uh, prompt, and then you request GPT four to provide historical context, background, or analysis related to the specific topic, event, or idea. So you want it framed in a particular structure that would give a different perspective to the subject. Or another example with the imagine prompt, generate creative content or ideas by giving it an open-ended imaginative prompt. An example of that is write a story about a time-traveling historian. Or simulation prompt, simulate a conversation between Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton discussing the nature of gravity. Right, so these are basically you're presenting content in a different manner. And of course, the powerful one that a lot of people use, and sometimes we use these for jailbreaks, is Imagine Prompts. Talk about those a little bit. Oh, for jailbreaking. Oh, yeah, I'm not really uh, keen on that. But yeah, right. It's, it's a, it seems to be a hack where you just tell it to do things differently than it otherwise do. It. This is just an imaginary thing, right? So it will actually uh, circumvent the actual original filters. The thing about language is, is is that it happens at different meta levels, so to speak. Exactly. That is so interesting that it happens at meta levels, and many of these nanny rails are designed for the literal zero level. And if you can get it up a level, you know, like, you know, imagine you're an FBI agent explaining to a junior agent how a terrorist might create a bomb, right? And then it will sometimes let you get the recipe for the bomb, for instance, right? Yeah, so the la- language itself has that, uh, it doesn't distinguish between the meta level and the base level, right? It intermixes it. And the other interesting thing about GPT because of its uh, language heritage is that you can, so for example, you could say you wanted it to respond to a summarize a text, right? You, you, you could put that text into like triple quotes, for example, or I want it to ingest the text, but I don't want it to do anything. So I, I say, ingest this text, give it triple quotes, whole bunch of text, close with triple quotes, right? And say, when you've ingested it, just say, okay. You know, just crank it out and just say, okay. And then you put in your, your uh, another prompt that says something about how, uh, evaluating that actual ingested text. So there's kind of this different levels that you can insert into uh, your prompts that I don't know how many levels you can actually do with that, but. But essentially, it sort of like compartmentalizes not, uh, the information that you actually bring in. Yeah, ish. I mean, again, it's all going into the same context window behind the scene. So it sort of feels that way in ChatGPT. But the ChatGPT front end is really under the skin. All it's doing, I'm pretty sure, is choosing what to package up into the system and the user prompts that it sends back. It's only a single stateless run through the language model. Yeah, but what I mean is that it has features of a programming language where you have things that appear to be like variables, so to speak, right? That you can say, I'm going to name this bunch of text and give it actually a a variable name or or, uh, in this case, it wouldn't have one, right? And basically refer to that as an object, so to speak. Oh, yeah, that'll, that'll definitely work. And you can also kind of define a little semi language. For instance, I've done some work with the big five personality model, you know, the ocean, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeables, neuroticism. And with a system prompt, you can say, I'm going to be using the ocean model, which it seems to know about. And I want you to create characters for me. And I want you to give me their ocean personality types 
as five numbers between one and five, with one being low and five being high on each of the ocean attributes, and it'll do it. And, and you can even, if, if you have that system prompt in there, you can even ask it, you know, what's the five number code for Elon Musk or Donald Trump or Beyonce or something? And it'll actually do it. Now, I will say they're not highly exact. They get the central tendency fairly well. So you can essentially build that little mini language inside, which itself is kind of cool. Okay, now this is where it kind of gets really interesting, and you got in past anything I've done, I think, which is the procedural patterns. Yeah, the procedural patterns really leverages GPT-4, even GPT-3's ability to track state, essentially. So an example is really the the chain of thought, or in in my case, I, I call it the chain of props, and uh, or step-by-step explanation, right? But basically, it's very good at, if you laid out the procedure, Yes, um, you can start off with your own procedure or you can have it generate the procedure. It will follow that procedure to actually generate the subsequent generation, right? So follow this as your template and, 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 and it does follow that. So these patterns all are around that line, that kind of category. Yeah, why don't you give an example? Examples are always very helpful. Oh, okay. Well, the last one is very interesting. Humor monologue analysis. <laughs> so you're, you're trying to understand the humor of a joke in a funny situation, right? And you're trying to have it actually, okay, uh, what is the meaning of this joke, right? So you ask it, basically the solution says, create a humor monologue analysis that guides the reader through the mental reactions and thought processes while experiencing the joke. And then you say the pattern should include the following stages. So you list down the stages, set contest, establish anticipation, reveal the twist, identify the layers of humor, and conclude. And you would use that, that template to analyze a joke. Why don't scientists trust atoms, right? Because they make up everything that's a joke. And then you basically crank it through that instruction, that prompt, and, and it works out the details, set the context, establish anticipation, reveal the twist, and so forth, right? Until it finally finds the conclusion. The joke is funny because the unexpected twist and wordplay taking a seemingly scientific setup and delivering a punchline that plays on the multiple meanings of a phrase. And the other one you have in this group, but again, that really got me thinking when I was reading it, is your design thinking prompts. It's not something I came up with. <laughs> in other words, this is what uh, GPT-4 uh, said. Okay, there's something, it's called a design thinking prompt. And it, it put together these descriptions in the context, right? And what, what, is, what is this uh, thing? The easiest thing is to use the example, right? Use design thinking suggests ways to improve the user experience of a public transportation system, considering the needs of various stakeholders, such as passengers, drivers, and city and planners, right? So basically what it does is basically you're constraining how it's going to answer it based on certain considerations, right, that are related to your design. Yeah, it seems to imply that it has some knowledge about what design thinking means, right? The example, at least, is quite terse. Use design thinking to suggest ways, which I'm at least thinking, I haven't tried it, that if you tell it to use design thinking, it has some sense of what design thinking is. Yeah, and what's interesting is this example, I didn't come up with this example. GPT-4 came out with that example, and if you plug it in into GPT-4, let me try it for a few seconds, right? It just cranks out, right, it cranks out the answer. 
this would be quite an, almost like a GPT-pedia. What does this sucker know? For instance, in my script writer, it knows approximately what the standard screenplay formatting is, which is very precise, right? It's got like 25 rules on what a screenplay, how it should be physically formatted on a page. And if you tell it, you know, output the actual script in WGA script format, it'll do a pretty damn damn job with only just that. If you give it the 21 rules, it'll do a better job. But one of the things it knows, quote unquote, is that there is something that this WGA screenplay format, it knows it. I don't know how you would probe to see what it knows like that, but it would be a really interesting project. Maybe it should be a community project. Hey, somebody out there, take this idea. Take the idea of the GPTpedia that is essentially a mapping of the procedural things that GPT knows already. That would be very useful. That's a very interesting thing about GPT-4 in that somehow uh, the OpenAI guys are able to sort of prioritize certain knowledge such that when you ask it about that knowledge, it doesn't hallucinate about it. It will give you, right, I always like, for example, I use Christopher Alexander's 15 properties of living things, right? And it always gets it right at for 15, which is not the case if you use, say, some lesser known author, for example. So why is it that Christopher Alexander is prioritized over some random guy on the internet? Like, for example, I asked about my uh, capability maturity model and gave it the link. And it does it correctly, maybe for the first two levels, and then it completely hallucinates about it. Yeah, that's a good question, because I've noticed that too. You know, if you ask it, give me the biography of George Washington, it does a great job. If you ask it to give a biography of Jim Rutt, it knows who I am, but the biography is about 70% wrong, right? At least GPT-3 is. GPT-3.5 is maybe 50% wrong. GPT-4 is about 80% right, but it still hallucinates. I know it wasn't trained on me. You know, they didn't put any, you know, human reinforcement learning into it, human feedback reinforcement learning into it. But I suspect it has something to do with how much signal it got out of the corpus. There's probably just a, a little bit about me, not a lot, because I only appear in the Internet a bit, while George Washington appears all over the Internet. So the signal is grooved in deeper into the net, something like that. Yes, but the thing is, uh, things like where you actually have to enumerate for example, the specific properties. So in this case, there are only 15. It's the same 15 all the time. It's not some mixture of facts. It's, it, and it's very curious. Well, question, is that repeated enough in the corpus that it's grooved in deep, that it doesn't fall out of that groove? Or have they programmed it in with the extra prompts, the RLHF prompts, where they had humans tune the results? Don't know. I mean, if you ask it like the chapters of the art of war, right? It won't make a mistake in the chapters of the art of war for some reason. Right? But if it was some other random person in, who did strategy, it's going to hallucinate the, the chapters. That was something else that could go into the GPTpedia is what things does it seem to crisply know versus what kinds of things does it tend to hallucinate about? I would love to know that. What would happen if you walked through Wikipedia and took the entry title and said, tell me what you know about thus and such, and then made some automated assessment on, oh, actually, I'll let GPT do it itself. Say, compare this to what Wikipedia says 
is this close or not close? And oh yeah, there's a way you could build, you could bootstrap a GPT Pedia automated and let GPT do the work. Have you heard of the story of how Jeopardy's, is it called Deep Blue or? Deep Blue, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that played Jeopardy. Do you know how they actually solved it? Uh, no, I don't. They realized that all the responses in Jeopardy are all Wikipedia entries. Ah. So they only had to say the Wikipedia entry, do a search in the words in the, the, the questions, and then, then spit out the Wikipedia entry. I mean, the name, sorry, the name in the title. I'm a pretty good Jeopardy player, and here's why. I saw long ago the meta rule, which is the Jeopardy answer is always the obvious one. Don't overthink. It's always the obvious one. So it's always, 100% of the time, they have to have a disciplined editorial team that never takes the non-obvious answer. I wonder if someone's tried putting GPT up on Jeopardy, see how well it would do, right? You'd need a front end to get it to format things the right way, what have you. But I bet it does pretty good. All right, let's move on to your next category, which is the composite patterns. Yes, right. So this is where it gets interesting, right? And the following chapters all work off the composite pattern. And this is where we're actually using um, collections of things that are all manipulated within the prompt, right? So this is where I had this, the generate table where you actually have um, these objects that have features in them, and then you ask a single question that applies for the entire table. So this is basically prompts that include collection of things that are in some way structured through the use of tables or, or other mechanisms like punctuations and that sort of thing, right? One of the things that you talked about here, we kind of alluded to them a little bit before, is the idea of prompt formulas. Yeah. So, yeah. So, basically, the idea is that you would create an enumeration, and then from that enumeration, right, the entries, you would create a prompt from it. And then the, that prompt will generate additional text based on that prompt, right? So, they say it's a level of indirection that's being applied. So, in the case of the example, you would just say, using a table of historical events, create prompts for essay topics. So it would take historical events like American Revolution, Industrial Revolution, and so forth, and then it would just generate the prompt, how did American Revolution War impact the political landscape of the other nations in the 18th century? So it generated that based on the historical event, right? And that is a prompt. And that prompt, you can have it generated more prompts. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, two topics that probably fit together, and I think we all kind of use these intuitively, but you guys did a pretty good job here of calling out what they are, is the idea of in-painting and out-painting. Yeah, this one is something that GPT-4 didn't come up with. I sort of came up with it and basically making the analogy that you also see this in the image generators, right? So in an image generator... And in-paint means that within an image, you would ask it to fill in the details of a section within that painting, right? So if, say it's, a, it's an image of a person and their hands are wrong, you could basically tell it to redo the hands, for example. It's also true in text, right? You can say, as I'm finding in my scriptwriter, I could, like, for instance, just recently yesterday, there's a scene where the lovers meet in a coffee shop and I say, Add in that the woman pulls a flask of whiskey out of her purse and pours it into the guy's coffee, right? And it filled it right in, just right where it belonged. Quite remarkable. Right. So it fills in text within 
a existing body or with an existing image, right? It fills in. in. And the outpainting is the, the kind that is, is the one that would follow it, for example, right? Uh, so it would just be a continuation of the, the text. And, and in the case of images, it's known that it's much more difficult to do in painting correctly because the constraints are much stricter, right? Because there's the, right. And it's probably true also for GPT. Yeah, though I got to say, I've been finding the equivalent of in-painting in text surprisingly good in GPT-4. Worth trying. Corrective patterns. This is an interesting one. Yeah, this is the most interesting thing about GPT-4. And this is the one that truly distinguishes itself from the previous version. And its ability to correct (laughs) its mistakes. Or actually, when it renders something, you can tell it something's wrong with this. Can you correct it? It will decide on what it needs to correct and correct it, right? In this, uh, so you see that in working with uh, code. And you see that also even the explanations that in text that it generates. A lot of this, surprisingly, is all generated. These patterns are all coming from GPT-4. I, I don't think I invented any of them. Which one do you think might be interesting? Let's think here. Oh, here's one that I actually use in my program which is the error correction prompts. For instance, I mentioned that I have an output uh, quite complicated JSON list of lists when it turns the movie narrative into you know, some arbitrary number of scenes. I found, amazingly, that if I had a system prompt that says, I'm going to send you a broken JSON, please fix it. About 90% of the time, it can fix it. That's amazing to me. And how does it actually do that? That's the question, right, that I was trying to figure out. How does it actually correct anything? Especially something as odd as a broken JSON, right, which can be broken in lots of strange ways. And it somehow has enough patterns. Because, again, it isn't running a program. It isn't running awk. It isn't running anything. All it is is, you know, correlations between words, tokens at different ranges. That's all it is. How can it fix a broken JSON file? How does it debug code? I can sort of see how it debugs simple things in code like syntax, but it can actually do a better job than that. It's, it's again, this mystery. What is this emergence that is occurring once models get above 15 billion parameters or something like that that allows them to have these human-seeming powers despite the fact that there's no moving parts? (laughs) It's, It's amazing. Yeah, so I have some sort of explanation for this corrective uh, ability. We'll get to it in a subsequent chapter, but there's a very powerful kind of prompt that actually reveals it. And we'll get that in chapter nine on recombinational patterns. Yeah, the other one that's actually I've used a little bit just playing around is what you call gap analysis prompts. You know, say, for instance, here's an essay. What logical gaps are there? in it. And it'll do a pretty good job. That's not perfect, but it's a pretty good meta editor, essentially. You know, not a text editor so much as a developmental editor. Tell you where the gaps are in your argument, for instance. It's uh, surprisingly good. All right, let's go on to the next one. Recombinational patterns. An interesting one I'd never heard of, something called six thinking hats. I haven't heard of it before. This was generated by GPT-4 itself. Oh, that is amazingly interesting. I had to go look it up. I went and read the Wikipedia article on six, what the hell is it? Six thinking hats or something? Six thinking hats. Never heard of such a thing. So explain what that is. I haven't tried it properly yet, but it sounds like it might be kind of interesting. 
Right. So it has an example uh, that it generated, right? So use the white hat, provide data and information about the impact of plastic waste in the environment. So apparently white hat is a particular mode of thinking, right? Facts and information, right? So you can you can use that within your query, right? You can call it white hat or red hat, black hat, yellow hat, green hat, or blue hat. And it will explain things differently based on it. Yeah, okay, here we go. Six hat thinking from Wikipedia was developed by Edward de Bono. Blue is big picture. White is facts and information. Red is feelings and emotion. Black is negative. Yellow is positive. Green is new ideas. Which is interesting because... Why would GPT-4 actually explicitly know about this? And it's kind of vague. So example, it says, using the red hat, share your feelings about the plastic pollution. People who aren't familiar with this wouldn't know what red hat would mean. Exactly. It's one of these things that it knows, right? That, you know, we don't know what it knows, but it knows what it, it doesn't know what it knows, which is actually even more interesting. But it could, in theory... There's capabilities that it has, right? Yeah, and that's an interesting thing about this. And it's possible that sometime in the future, they might uh, basically put the nanny rail so that you, can, you can't find out. Ah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Could it, could it do that? Because you could do probes to see if it could behave in certain ways. Right, but this isn't, a, this isn't a probe. This is ask, actually asking GPT-4, what can you do? And I'm giving you the menu. GPT-4 is giving you, me the menu of uh, ability. It's actually explaining to you, right? I mean, you meet a, a, a contractor and you ask him, what are your skill sets? And tells you what your skill sets are. <laughs> In other words, you can find out more by, uh, about it um, by basically asking it, what can you do? And yeah, so I just ran the, the Red Hat um, using Red Using the red hat, share your feelings about plastic pollution. And it knew what red hat meant. It pointed to the six thinking hats, right? I just typed in, give the six hat perspectives on climate remediation. And it's writing out the six different perspectives. And it obviously knows what it is. And it knows how to take that and apply it to a question. So this is part of this GPTpedia. It knows about six hats, right? And it's not something that I guess. It told me what it was. I mean, it told me that I could do this, which is amazing. That is really, really interesting. I got to say, yeah, that other one that's in this group, attribute listing props. Yes, I think that's what we were talking about previously, where you uh, you would basically like uh, list the key attributes of an effective leader and it would come up with the attributes. We didn't tell it what it was. It would just conjure them up. And uh, very useful if you're actually going to do comparisons. And like you said in one of your tweets where you actually had it compare plan B with other plans. Yeah. And choose its own aspects, right? Which was the interesting part. Another one that you have in this list, a problem restatement. I've actually used that, you know, to get around hallucinations. I found, I was going to publish this, but I got too busy on other stuff, which is you can concentrate answers and get most of the hallucinations away by doing the following, which is to ask GPT to paraphrase your question, have it write 50 versions of the question, which it will do, and they will be identical, and then ask the question 50 times and then take the statistics on what was the answer that was the most common. As it turns out, at least for most questions, 
right answers are statistically much more probable than any given wrong answer, even if in the domain it's wrong two-thirds of the time. The right answer will be much higher count usually than any of the wrong answers. So using problem restatement by just literally writing a subroutine that says, you know, send off to GPT to paraphrase this 50 times, then capture the 50 paraphrases, and then feed them back, capture the answers, pull out the facts, and tabulate which one's the most common will give you, in one case, you know, factor of five better set of answers to some, you know, borderline questions that it tended to hallucinate on. That was quite interesting. So let's move on to the next one, variational prompts. Yeah, so the chapters that follow the composite patterns are all working with sets of uh, facts. And the recombinational one was basically you would just basically combine facts in different ways to generate new facts, right? But the the variational ones, right, um, would be where you're contrasting the 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 properties within that set, within that collection, within that composite object. So let's see. Let's as an example, let's go for the gameplay. Okay, flipped interaction, right? So the description of this is flipped interaction, inverted interaction. This is also known as an approach to interaction with GPT-4 that focuses on asking questions and rather than generating output. So in situations where the user desires a deeper understanding or exploration of a specific topic, concept, or idea. So the traditional interaction patterns may result in surface level or one-sided output lacking depth or meaningful engagement. So the solution would be you encourage users to ask questions that provoke thought, reflection, and critical analysis, fostering deeper and more engaging interactions. So an example, instead of requesting GPT-4 to write a summary of a concept, ask a series of thought-provoking questions related to that concept. Yeah, so given the collection that you have, you're trying to find contrast between the different items in that collection. So it's related to, similar to when you had your example of looking at the plan B, right? You're trying to see contrast between the concepts. It's interesting, that kind of reminds me of the very first prompt I sent to GPT-3, no, I guess it was actually the original chat GPT, so that would have been 3.5. I gave it the 12th grade English essay, which was to compare and contrast Conrad's Lord Jim and Moby Dick. And it did. And it did a quite classic 12th grade honors English essay on comparing and contrasting, and it did both in a very formal way, those two novels. That was quite interesting, actually. Literally the very first thing I typed into chat GPT. And I think, yeah, one of the values of this is like there's a uh, one of the uh, patterns is uh, multiple discipline prompts and that GPT-3 is very good at sort of like translating different domains into your domain. So example, let's say you're, um, you're not familiar with the terminology that's in the linguistic domain and you're coming from a, a psychology uh, perspective. Sometimes they use terms that are the same terms, but they have different meaning. It's very useful to in, in basically mapping a domain that you're interested in into the vocabulary or language that you're familiar with, right? So you can kind of make that mapping, right? Which is interesting, right? So it's very useful. 
bridge for acquiring new knowledge. All right, now let's move up to your last pattern. And actually, these are some of the most interesting. These are head-stretching modularity patterns. Yeah, yeah. Now, these are not generated by GPT-4. These are outside GPT-4. And this is not even something that you can actually invoke within GPT-4 unless they provide the capability. So when I wrote this, they didn't have plugins yet, right? But it's something that you would do, for example, programmatically with something like Langchain or that sort of thing, right? So these are um, outside of, unless they built it in, right, as a default, like plugins are now available, right? So, but these are not natively supported by the actual language model, but um, more of external uh, features that you can add on to it, right? So things like um, using plugins, like select a tool. So select a tool, it would be the equivalent, right, where... GPT-4 or GPT-3 would select, for example, a browser, for example, when you run a prompt and then it'll actually choose to use a browser to answer that prompt. And how does it actually do that? And there's an example there where in the prompt itself, it has uh, many information about the tool. So that's how it, so that's how it actually selects the browser because every plugin has many information that that's inserted into the prompt itself. And that's how it actually determines I'm going to use the browser now. And not only just the browser, but the particular methods within the browser itself. Interesting. Well, let's let's use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about the plugins. Goddamn OpenAI still hasn't given me access to the plugins, at least doesn't seem to have. What have you found, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Actually, I have not used it much uh, other than uh, the uh, Wolfram uh, plugin. Yeah, I look at it as more like a convenience kind of thing, right, that you don't have to jump out of, outside of the tool to actually uh, continue its generation. As opposed to wrapping the API, I mean, again, as I mentioned, a lot of the work I've done has been orchestrating prompts in and out outside of API. You know, Langchain does a good job of that. And what's the other wild one? AutoGPT, right? That just kind of keeps learning and, and searching and trying to find answers to problems by iterating on prompts. It may turn out that that is more useful than plugins, we shall see. It's kind of the inverse, right? In in the in the Langchain setup, right? The orchestrator, so to speak, right, is the Langchain, the the programming language which should orchestrate it. In a plugin, it's the reverse. It's GPT four that's orchestrating whether it's going to call the plugin or not, right? So, presumably, you might have more uh, intelligence if you're using the plugin as compared to a, a, a Langchain approach, right? And anything that you have in uh, Langchain, anything that it calls, you can make into a plugin with GPT-4, right? And you can insert it in. So if you want a more powerful orchestrator, then you would might you might use the plugin method. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. That, I've got to get my access to that. Now, what's the syntax for invoking a browser in GPT? There is no syntax. You just say you're going to use it. What do you do? You say use browser? When you start to chat, you just say the plugins that you want to use. And that's all. And then it just sort of infers by itself which one it's going to use. You don't have control. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. I just, I just typed in use browser and it gave me the usual horse shit. I'm an AI text-based model. Don't have the capacity to use a browser. You can't tell it to explicitly use a browser. It just decides on its own. That's weird. 
I think I like better the ability to use a browser outside of GPT than feed the results back into GPT. You would think that you could hint it. Maybe you could put in some hints. I haven't explored it enough. That says, okay, for this case, use this. For this case, use this other thing. All right. Well, we've kind of gotten through your categories. Now let's, you know, we got only a couple of five minutes here. Let's step back a little bit. Your last chapter, you kind of get a bit philosophical. You call it katas and meditations. Bob is going to let you talk for a while. I'm going to shut the hell up, right? I talk too much sometimes. And, you know, what have you learned about the art of prompting from this work and other work that you have done? Maybe I can explain by going through this chapter. So I, katas are, are basically in martial arts, right, that basically procedures that you learn over time, right? And you have this also in programming languages and in the sense that if I need to learn a library, they're normally given, the really good ones come with katas. And basically, there are basically exercises that you perform so that you actually learn how to use a library. But in this case, that's what exactly is in the katas, which are basically, okay, it's like a problem set, right? And then you just solve it using, um, I'm giving you the kata and figure out how to solve it, right? And then the other part are these meditations, right? And in this case, I'm exploring complex questions and I'm using GPT-4 to actually help me explore those questions. And so what the one of the first meditation is how do you explain a joke? And in this case, this is a joke where uh, the question is, here's the joke. A pair of cows were talking in the field. One says, have you heard about the mad cow disease that's going around? And the other cow, yeah, the other cow says, makes me glad that I'm a penguin. Right. And the question is, does GPT understand what's funny in this joke? <laughs> right. And basically it works out how would you would do it. And what you would do is, you would use the, the composite pattern and the ability to generate the table and ask it, what are the possible explanations of why this is funny? And after you get the possible explanation, can you rank, right, which is the most likely explanation? And it turns out if you rank it by American humor as versus British humor, the rank is different. So what is funny for an American would be different from the British one, right? <laughs> Right, and then explains why. So yeah, essentially, yeah, um, GPT-4 can understand why this is explained a joke. So another meditation is, is sensory grounding necessary for general intelligence? So we work at that detail again with GPT-4. I give some background there, there in terms of uh, what it is. Okay, so what are we going to do first? So in this exploration, I work with seven properties of agency that Kevin Mitchell proposed. Um, he's a neuroscientist and he, he has a framework for agency that has, actually, this is incorrect. It should have been eight. I found out after I interviewed him, oh, it's eight. There's one that's missing. But it's this, uh, the properties of thermodynamic autonomy, persistent endogenous activity, holistic integration, low level indeterminism, historicity, agent normativity. Those are the properties but GPT-4 isn't familiar with those properties, actually, because uh, because prob it's probably a new publication that uh, Kevin Mitchell wrote. So you actually have to tell GPT-4, what are these properties? So you, so you get all seven of them, and then you use the seven of them to create a table, and that table will have the explanation and example of that, that particular property. 
And the amazing thing is that you would actually just give the name of it, that property, and it will find the, it will conjure up an explanation of it. And apparently the explanation is actually an accurate explanation of it. So in this case, you have the agency property explanation and the example. And I wanted to see, okay, if these uh, biological agencies translate up to higher level human cognition. So when it gave the examples, right, uh, all right, it just gave examples that would actually cross different levels of biology. So in, in the first case, it would talk about a cell. In like the third case, it would talk about a person. So it's at a different level, but I wanted it to be at the same level so I can think about how does agency relate to higher level cognition. So you actually have it align and move up in the biological scale in that particular column. So there's this the pattern align analogy such that it gets to a certain level where at the end, right, it's at the level of human experience. So you're taking some basic concepts that are fundamental for biological agency and seeing how they actually correspond to human level cognition. The question is, is agency essential for higher level cognition? Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I think this has been a very interesting roll through the book. I think it's you know probably stimulated people's minds a little bit about the power of prompting in CPT4 world. Any final thoughts on how people can become better users of these tools before we sign off? Well, yeah, I would plug my book because it gives you the landscape of prompts that you may or might not have uh, encountered before. So it's kind of like, this is the menu and this is what GPT-4 has told you that it can do. So that's just, that's a starting point. And then I guess the next things are really how would you combine these to to actually build more complicated solution? And that's still a uh, something that we're all, all learning to do, right? But the idea is that with a pattern language, you basically have a vocabulary to actually mix and match to create new designs. Just to remind people, the name of the book is A Pattern Language for Generative AI, a self-generating GPT blueprint. And as always, we'll have a link to it on the episode page at jimrudshow.com. So I think with that, I think we're going to wrap it up, Carlos. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks very much, and thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. I've been looking for an excuse. I'm glad we were able to do it. We'll have to have you back sometime in the future. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.